Welcome to Unpeeling the Onion, a podcast that explores the drives and motivations that guide people's best work. Other podcasts ask what people do or how they do it. Unpeeling the Onion asks why. My name is Marcus Banks. Our fourth conversation is with T. Scott Putchak, Director of Digital Data Curation Strategies at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. This brand new position is still being defined, and Scott's years as a distinguished medical librarian position him well to do so. Scott describes his new position, as well as his somewhat heterodox views regarding open access publishing. We also discuss the unique challenge of change management in libraries. One technical note, this interview is recorded in two parts. Without further ado, here is my conversation with T. Scott Blitchek. Okay, so the first question, you have described this as how this could be a golden age for librarians, which I always like to interpret as it is a golden age, but if you could describe as how, why you think it could or, or may not be, what, what your thoughts are in that regard. Yeah, I think I've made that comment in a couple of pieces. What What's behind it is this sense that we have this huge information-rich environment that is tremendously complicated and chaotic. And there's a great need for helping people learn how to make use of it, for helping to organize it, for sorting through all of this. And that's the kind of thing that librarians have always been particularly good at. So my thinking on it is if we as librarians focused on making those connections and focused on how we can use our talents in new and creative ways, then we could become even more vital to society than I think our organizations have been. Mm -hmm. So that's the plus side of it. Mm -hmm. The negative side of it, and when I start to wonder if we're going to take advantage of this, is when I continue to see librarians very focused on libraries and maintaining libraries and keeping libraries relevant as if the most important thing that we do is maintain our organizations or maintain our buildings. Mm -hmm. And I think that to the extent that we do that, we keep ourselves rooted in ways of thinking that really prevent us from achieving what I think society needs from us and what I think I think we really could achieve. I was I was struck thinking about this call this morning. One of my latest annoyances uh, yes, yes, please. With with <laughs> um, surveys, online surveys. Yeah. And I mean an online survey that you get by email is flawed from the get-go because you don't have any control over who you're surveying. But I generally try to at least give it a shot if it's something that I think I have an interest in and might be able to be helpful in. And so often the second or third demographic question is, what kind of a library do you work in? Oh, like academic or public or... Yeah, yeah, like those and yeah checklist things. I don't work in a library anymore. Yeah, now, yeah. I consider myself to be one hundred percent a librarian, and the work that I'm doing now is because I'm a librarian, and that's how I identify. But I don't work in a library, and so I can't answer your survey. 
um, even though I might have something helpful to say. But it's that kind of unthinking rootedness yeah. in the library as the locus for what we do that I think stands in our way. And when I push this notion of a golden age for librarians, it's partly trying to nudge my tribe, as it were, to think about themselves and their talents and to think less about the libraries. At the building specifically, like how to draw people it's in. Even, even the organization, yeah. even, even the sense that the the library is this particular group of people who are organized around doing a particular set of tasks. I made a point, I think, in, in the Doe lecture a couple of years ago that part of what got me thinking in this direction was when I was editor of the Journal of the Medical Library Association and I would get articles describing some cool thing that was happening somewhere and the language that was used was always the library did this or the library is doing this mm -hmm. and it really started to rub against me because I thought well no it's the librarians it's the people who are doing these things but we assign it to this entity whether you're thinking building or organization instead of really focusing on the people who are involved in doing it so so it's not even just the building it's thinking about ourselves as a structure whether that's an organizational structure or a physical structure instead of breaking out of that and thinking very individually about how we as individual librarians or as groups of librarians interact with the communities that we're involved with. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess the challenge is, of course, it, the old model is so familiar and the new model is amorphous by its nature. You're going to oh, gear into that's the... Absolutely. And, and, and we do have to continue mm -hmm. to... I mean, there's a broad range of needs. There's a, a line that I've used for decades. Our job is not to build a better library, it's to figure out how we can best use our particular talents and skills to further the goals of the communities that we serve. Sure, yep. And sometimes that means doing the sorts of things that people have always associated with libraries. Sometimes it means doing things that people never thought of associating with a library. And sometimes it means stopping doing things that people have always associated with libraries. Now that first piece is important. There are sets of services that we need to continue to provide. And those are the areas that we tend to be most comfortable with. So of those sort of three layers, that's the one where we end up devoting more of our attention and more of our energy because that's the comfortable space where we know we are achieving something, where we know we're making a difference. Coming up with the brand new things is very challenging because we have to identify what those things are and then figure out how we get the skills to achieve them and how to persuade the people who are paying our salaries, regardless of where we're working, that that's a good investment. And then, of course, there's the not doing stuff that we've always done that is tremendously difficult for librarians to do. So, so yeah, the whole thing is extremely challenging because it, it does have us breaking away from the modes of activity that we've been most comfortable with. So, so this is, you know, 
a, a generational uh, centuries. <laughs> it's a huge timeline. The shift, and it's not like it would ever be complete. But but uh, but but that's why we're, I mean, we're really, we really are talking about the transformation of a profession, both its culture and, to some extent, its values. Although probably the values are actually more stable than than the practices. Yeah, I I I tend to see it actually as a continuing evolution. Yes. Um I I think the values are the same. I I had a conversation, God, this goes back to the mid 80s. So I was just back home after my first year as an NLM associate. Uh-huh. And I was talking about the impact of technology and what was happening with Medline, and this is just before end user searching of Medline. And I was explaining the changes that I was seeing in the profession to a former high school teacher of mine. And he said, Does this mean that librarianship is undergoing a fundamental change? Okay. And I said, No. Depending on what you think that librarianship always has been. If you think it is the tasks that we are doing today, but that's the definition of librarianship, yes, then it's a fundamental change. Mm -hmm. But if you dig a little bit deeper, and my view is that the fundamental role of librarians has always been to connect people with the creative work, uh, with the knowledge of other people, then what we're doing now is exactly the same thing that we've always done. We're just using the latest technology to try to do it better. So I don't see it as a huge as a huge shift from one way of thinking about librarianship to another as much as it is trying to get us to think back to the fundamentals about librarianship in the first place. Different I mean relatedly but somewhat different the second question I had sent you was about scholarly communication specifically the push for open access to the results of research studies and you had said you spoke about this at Congress actually a few years ago and you had said in your view that mere access uh, to those pieces is not enough and just wondered if you could elaborate on that yeah there, there's been a, a tremendous amount of effort driven primarily by Spark and the Association of Research Libraries and the the advocates that they've gathered around them to make more copies of peer-reviewed articles available without subscription barriers. And I think that's a good thing. I mean, I and I don't I don't want to suggest that that is not a good thing and not something that is worth pursuing. I just think that the claims for it are tremendously overblown. Most the, the studies that have been done over the last 10 years in terms of actual access to the scholarly literature on the part of scholars indicates that it's pretty good. And in fact, with the proliferation of electronic media, it's probably better than it's ever been. So there's a relatively small increase in accessibility that the open access movement is providing. And uh, just on, on that... But I think the advocates would say that the reason for that great level of access, of course, I mean, you know all these arguments, that they come from library budgets and that it really should be the province of the academy. So that, yes, access has improved uh, through the web, essentially, through being able to download the articles rather than coming into the library. But but that's, if you will, on the backs of uh, library uh, budgets.
So there, there's the there's the affordability problem, the accessibility problem. Yep. And librarians have tended to conflate the two. And there has been what I consider to be a naive hope on the part of many librarians that open access was going to solve the affordability problem as well, that somehow the move towards open access was going to reduce or eliminate the stranglehold that the big commercial publishers have. And I always anticipated that what has indeed happened is what would happen, which is that the big commercial outfits would outfits would figure out how to turn it into a business model. And so now the biggest open access publisher is Springer Nature. Um, Elsevier puts out a new uh, open access journal just about every week, and their profits are, are as good or better than ever. So the affordability problem has not been touched at all. And in fact, for the libraries that have invested in open access funds, they find themselves trying to carve out money for that as well as still having to maintain all the subscription. Then you have the devotees of green open access who pursue that because they don't want to cooperate with the big publishers. But of course, for green open access to make any sense at all, you have to have vibrant subscription publishers to manage the peer review. And if they were open access, you wouldn't need green anyway. So to my mind, the whole open access movement, while I absolutely agree with the fundamental notion of making accessibility better, hasn't done a thing to address the larger issues of how we communicate and share information. And I think it has distracted a lot of potential energy from experiments and projects that I think could be a lot more useful. Such as? I, th I think what Chorus is doing is extremely positive. I think some of the ideas behind Share are pretty positive, and I've been very pleased to see that the Share people and the Chorus people have been in communication, are looking at, at how they can work together. Certainly the whole move towards open data, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I think, has a lot more potential than increasing access to copies of journal articles. And so we're starting to see more investment of time and energy in that. So I, I think that those are all good good efforts that we should be applying more energy to. But I do feel like we've wasted an awful lot of time caught up in this fight between the sainted librarians and the evil publishers over open access, which I don't think has achieved very much, but which has sucked up tremendous amounts of time and energy. Do these views uh, make you uh, pariah is too strong? But how uh, you know when you go to Spark meetings or whatever, like how I didn't ask you this when we talked last week. I'm just curious how what's it like uh, being a heretic slash maverick or whatever label you want to put. Yeah, on it? well, I, I actually it, it's funny that you use the word because I I did a plenary talk at Charleston some years ago in which I declared myself to be an open access heretic. Okay. Uh, and, and the notion being that Martin Luther never quit believing in Jesus Christ, he just quit believing in the Pope. Mm -hmm. And I've never quit believing in subscription-free access to journal articles, I just don't believe in Spark. So I, I, I don't I wouldn't say that I'm a pariah. I think I'm somewhat suspect, which is fine with me. 
But the other side of it is most librarians that I talk to are really not all caught up in the whole moral crusade of open access. And I think that that most librarians are really more amenable to the notion of more creative, more cooperative ways of looking at the scholarly communication ecosystem as a whole, but we have not had leadership within the library community because everybody defers to ARL and Spark to set the tone. And when I talk to my friends and colleagues on the publishing side, many of them would welcome greater involvement on the part of librarians, but they don't quite know where to turn because the library organizations all have this very heavy-handed anti-publisher stance. And so publishers do what they do and get the work done that they think makes the most sense. Here I mean all publishers, big, small, commercial, independent, not-for-profit, you know, PLOS as well as Elsevier. And I think the library profession would be better served and the overall scholarly ecosystem would be better served if we would engage more creatively and cooperatively. Organizations like SSP, the Society for Scholarly Publishing, has made a very, very strong commitment to bringing librarians and people in publishing together. I would strongly urge librarians who care about these issues to get involved with that organization. So, I I mean, I see hopeful signs, but I, I think that librarians have to really think through more systematically what the economics are. They have to be more hard-headed about separating the affordability and accessibility problems. And they have to be more willing to recognize that across the board, even in the big commercial publishing outfits, there are people of goodwill who believe that they are performing a social good. And they're people that we ought to be able to work with. You actually have clashing moralities or or visions of the same thing, right? One person would say it's so that's why it, and if it's pitched that way it becomes very hard to Yeah, yeah. I I, I did a talk a couple of years ago at uh, UKSG uh, in which I argued actually librarians and publishers share the same value. And the way that I characterized it is librarians are people who are fiercely dedicated to the work of making scholarly information as good and as widely available as possible and they see market forces as the barrier to doing that successfully. People in publishing are people who are fiercely dedicated to the notion of making good scholarly information as widely available as possible and they see market forces as the engine for doing that. Mm-hmm. So, this, this is the, so we so, are trying to achieve the same thing, yeah. but it's how we view the market that is that is in our way. And if we would focus more on that piece rather than claiming that publishers are anti-science or all they care about is money, then we would have an opportunity to try to see where can things align and how do we reconcile these different views of the market in more productive ways. It feels like publishers and librarians are both aligned in the sense that they're serving an an audience of the scholars. Like really, as long as the paper 
and the impact factor or, or, or whatever is still the the primary vehicle for tenure and promotion both both sides of the like the, the power seems to me to align with the research community ultimately more so than with librarians or with if we wanted to change an entirely different paradigm that's where it would have to start from absolutely absolutely and that maybe is a segue to the third and more broad quite wicked problems <laughs> as a broad concept which is something you're focusing on now and yeah. if you could uh talk just sort of describe what they are in general wicked problems and then how you're using that in your work currently yeah yeah a couple of years ago the dean of the school of public health at uab set up an entity both a, a fifth space and and a concept sort of an innovation incubator at UAB called the Edge of Chaos. And the Edge of Chaos is dedicated to fostering innovation and to working on wicked problems. And when I first heard the term, I thought it was sort of a slangy kind of hip way of talking about complicated things. But it turns out the phrase wicked problems actually comes out of the social science literature in the 70s and it's used to define problems that are uh, have a very fuzzy boundary that tend to require expertise from different disciplines to to come together and they're the kinds of problems that you don't solve them so much as you sort of nudge things forward so a lot of urban problems are wicked problems. A lot of public health problems are wicked problems. So a year and a half or so ago, when I moved out of my role as director of the library into this newly created position focusing on research data management, I really saw the challenge as a version of a wicked problem. So what I'm focusing on now is how does my institution as a major research institution get a handle on the research data that we produce and properly manage it and curate it for the long term so that it can be open, so that it can be reused, so that we can achieve the kinds of real results that we were talking about a little earlier in, in changing the way that we do science and changing it in, in more effective ways. And one of the things that I realized as I was digging into this is that the way that research institutions are organized, there isn't a logical home for this problem. Librarians clearly have some expertise to bring, but it's also an IT issue. The Office of Research certainly has an important role to play. The compliance people are very concerned about these issues. And in a big research institution where you have lots and lots of individual quasi-independent labs and centers, all of these places have their own issues and their own concerns. And then you have the tremendous breadth of types of research and types of data from the very big, complicated omics databases require huge amounts of storage and very sophisticated processing to social science research that may involve large numbers of people, but the data itself is relatively stable, but still needs to be analyzed in sophisticated ways. And then very different cultures in terms of people's comfort with sharing data. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a very large 
problem space where you need to bring a lot of people together. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I've been doing is hosting monthly sessions in the Edge of Chaos where I try to bring people together from across the campus informally to really talk about these issues and share ideas and really try to surface where the most pressing needs are in supporting the research community. I think going back to the point that you were just making, that it's it's fundamentally about what serves the research community best. And then as we identify those issues, then what are things that librarians can do? What are things that the IT folks can do? What are the things that are of concern and interest to the people in the research office? And how do we organize these different entities across the campus in a way that we can effectively bring these different kinds of expertise to bear? It turns out to be a very challenging issue within research institutions because we're not, we're not organized to do that well. So uh, recognizing that you're nudging the problem rather than, sol quote, solving the problem, do you, are there any services that are sort of emerging from those monthlies, or is it still the exploratory phase? Well, I think what, what we're focusing very much on is using the current crop of uh, federal funding agency policies towards open data mm -hmm as kind of the lever to say, well, we, we need to do something here. So what is it that researchers are going to need in order to be in compliance? And so you, you see services cropping up at, at different institutions focused around data management plans. So how do you help researchers understand what is required by the different agency? How do you help them work through a data management plan? How do you incorporate that into the workflow involved in submitting a grant? How do you make sure that an individual investigator is taking full advantage of all of the resources that are available at the institution and making the best use of those resources? How then do you set up an audit trail that over the course of a project, you make sure that that data management plan is actually being followed. So so looking at that sort of whole life cycle of the data through a particular project, and we're starting to put together the pieces for what librarians will do in helping that out, how we work with the workflow in the Office of Sponsored Programs, what are the resources that the IT folks can bring to bear, where are the pockets of expertise to consult on data management plans and starting to put those pieces into place in as coordinated a fashion as we can. So that's that's the kind of the, the ongoing work for the yeah, yeah. What, the federal mandates officially people are supposed to have these data management plans now. I mean I don't know how much teeth are behind them or how like what's the what's the status on the I guess on the policy level nationally with like, is any new research, I think I'm just trying to educate myself, have to have a data management plan when they submit for the grant or only when it's awarded, or how does that work? The timelines and the specificity for the different agencies varies a lot. Mm -hmm. But essentially what we are seeing is as new requests for proposals are coming out of the agencies, they are now incorporating a requirement for some level of data management plan as part of the proposal. NFS has had this 
or NSF has had this for a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, NIH has had it for projects that are over half a million dollars. They're now requiring it for all projects. They are very modest, the requirements. They tend to be a page or two. What kind of data are you collecting? How are you going to store it? What are the security protocols? Up until now, what NSF and NIH have looked at is just that a plan be included. They haven't been scored as part of the merit ranking. Okay. NIH is now going to start scoring them. Mm -hmm. And what we anticipate happening is the requirements for rigor are gradually going to become more robust. But if you look at the NIH public access policy, for example, for publications, it took years for that to go from a voluntary program to a mandatory program, to monitoring compliance, to people starting to have grant applications turned back. It didn't happen overnight. Yes. And so we've got time to build some infrastructure, to develop services, to understand more fully what the funders are requiring, and to work with the research community to try to stay a little bit ahead of the requirement and make sure that as those requirements become more detailed, we are in a better position to make sure that as applications go out, the data management plan component is as strong as possible. Sounds good. That's a great note on which to end. It, it's also easy. These oh, yeah. Easy. <laughs> well, but thanks. The thing, yeah. the thing that I like about it is I, I, I really find this stuff fascinating. Yeah. And since I don't have any hope of actually solving the problem, it really takes the pressure off. Right. You're like, hey, yeah. every, every day I, 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 moved, I moved the ball one inch, but that's still better than it was. You know, exactly. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right. That's a good day. When, when we were starting our library liaison, I thought about it in sort of two ways. There's the formal part of the liaison program where the librarians go out and they try to tell the faculty what it is that the library can provide. And that's great. That's an important thing to do. But I would say when you go out, don't start by telling them what you can do for them. Ask them about their research. Ask them about their teaching. Ask them about what it is that they do and just listen to them. Because you might be able to get 15 minutes of their time to tell them about the library. But if you ask them about their stuff, they'll give you a lot more time, you'll learn a lot more, Mm -hmm. and then you'll be able to really think through what it is that you can do to help them. And, you know, to, to bring it back around where we started, I don't think librarians do that nearly enough. I think if we did that a lot more, then that sort of mythical golden age is something that would actually be at hand and i think that librarians who are doing that have an opportunity to build that golden age but if we don't do that if we just stay focused on trying to make the library relevant then then we're missing out and then we're not providing what i think we have a social responsibility to provide i think you might have mentioned this in the doe lecture or or when you like put a list of here's the 10 or 15 things the library do now and here's the 
let's t- that's the bottom third that's the least relevant let's take let's not do that anymore right. and let's and then of the top two thirds let's prioritize better so we so we yeah. i mean it all sounds so very logical <laughs> <laughs> but then it's super hard, as you know, from your tw- I'm thinking back to your 25 years yeah. to actually. I mean, where do you think the block is there? Like, well, we've always oh, yeah. done it that way. The chair of the department really wants X or whatever it might be. Yeah, uh, yeah. It's I. I always try to be careful not to not to claim that some of these organizational challenges are peculiar to librarianship. At the same time, I think there are sort of cultural qualities to our profession that might make some of this more difficult. I I think if you take that list of 10 or 15 things, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the things that are at the bottom are still important. It's it's not that you come up with a list and you look and say, oh, there's these unimportant things, or or, here are these things that we're doing just because we've always done them. Mm -hmm. I think it's often the case that we've always done them because they're important. The thing is, they're not as important as everything else. And you can't do everything. But librarians want to do everything, and we hate to say no. Right. So that's where I think organizationally this challenge might be a little bit more difficult for librarians than perhaps people in a more business-oriented environment. We just don't want to have to go back to our constituency and say, we're not going to do this piece anymore. We, we get caught up into this, if, and, and I'm sure that you've run into this. You're thinking of developing a new service, and somebody in your group is going to get nervous about what if it's really successful yeah, yes, yes. and there's a bigger demand on us than we can provide? Right. Yep. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, it happens all the time. Universal. And yeah. so, so you end up yeah. not delivering the new service. Right. Because you don't want to have to put people in line. Um, uh, systematic reviews. Take systematic reviews as an example because mm-hmm. it's, it's something that a lot of libraries are getting more involved with. So... The concern is if we advertise that we're going to do systematic reviews and we actually only have enough resources to work on three projects a month and we get 15 requests, what do we do? And I say, well, you either do the first three that came in and tell everybody else they're going to have to wait or you figure out which three are most important given the priorities of the institution and you tell everybody else they're going to have to wait. And then mm-hmm. your director goes to his or her bosses and says, there's this real pent-up demand, and here are the resources that I need to try to meet that demand. But all of that involves saying no mm-hmm. to the 12 people who would like to use your service mm-hmm. and just say, this is, this is as much as I can do. And rather than do a half-assed job with six, yeah. We're going to do a really good job with three, and we'll get to you when we can get to you. That is just incredibly hard for librarians to handle. It, 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 sort of analogous, and this might not systematic review is not a good example because that is really in depth work. But there's a lot of times these one off 
here's how to search PubMed trainings or something that could easily, a lot of it could be put online and then, and then you could put a lot, and then you could put 20 people in the room instead of four or five times, four people, five times. Right. But like even that can be, well, my people don't want to go to the web or what, whatever. I mean, you know, yeah. like the scalability thing that actually seems like it would save people time is still somehow a threat, maybe perhaps yeah. from the same yeah. basis. Like it, We'd rather do outstanding for everyone rather than... Right. It, it, absolutely. Absolutely. I remember, and you, you came into librarianship later than this, so I probably didn't see this as much. In the late 80s, early 90s, librarianship was faced with the public web. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And up to that time, if you were a reference librarian searching for information online, you knew how to search databases, and you knew how to search them better than anybody else. And the databases that you were searching were well-defined and well-structured, and you could become expert in them. And that was tremendously satisfying professionally. And I remember debates among librarians when the public web became available Mm -hmm. with librarians saying, that's not our role. Trying to teach people how to search the Internet is not our role because it's too vague, it's too amorphous, it changes too much, we can't tell what's out there, we can't ever become expert Mm -hmm. in searching the Internet, so we're just not going to go there. Now, of course... Yeah. If if you if you tried to convey to a bright young librarian with a brand new degree in 2016 yeah. that their peers ever felt that way, it's amazing. Yeah. It, 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 it would be just, and they would consider those people to be dinosaurs. Right. But those people were some of the very very best At, right. among us. But moving away from that area in which you really had that expertise was really, really hard. So I think I think what you're just describing, people who have been really, really good one-on-one in the classroom mm-hmm. teachers, moving that expertise online, that is extremely challenging and troublesome because you are making a move from something that you are expert at to something that you're not sure you're going to be as good at. Yeah. So it's it's not, again, it's not this draw of, oh, this is just the way we've always done it. It's, I'm really good at this. Yeah. And I'm really meeting a need with this. So am I going to be able to be as good if I do it this other way? Am I still going to be able to meet a need? And and those are some of the things that, that you get involved in when you're trying to, to deal with that change management. Yeah, I, you know, the 80s, 90s thing, yes, that I don't recall. But even when Google became this huge thing, you know, in the early oh, yeah. 2000s, it was, right. there was, a I think, librarians for – at the very beginning, you know, that's the open web. It's level, now you, most a lot of libraries will say, here's how you search Google more effectively. Oh, exactly. So, exactly. you know, so I, but it took, a, it took that – Right, right. Yeah, Google Google was the enemy. Yes. And, and, and Yeah, right. Well, I think this has been great. Thank you for listening to this fourth episode of Unpeeling the Onion, and a special thanks to T. Scott Plachek. For more details about what we discussed, please visit the show notes at unpeelingtheonion.tumblr.com.